I'd like you to try to imagine just one word to describe Israel's relationship with her kings. Think through the Old Testament. Think about what that relationship was like as this nation interacted with these men, um, these women who were tasked to lead her. Words that come to mind might be stressful, strenuous, tedious. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the nation of Israel cries out, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. And God spoke through Samuel to that request. He told Samuel, they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And he would go on through the prophet to warn the nation. If you want this king, a king will come and take your sons and your daughters and the best of your fields, a tenth of your seed, a tenth of your flocks, your male servants, your female servants, your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. That is not a joyful prospect. And how do the people respond to this? The people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations. Well, be careful what you ask for, right? There's Saul who's hiding with the luggage at his own coronation. There's Jeroboam who split the kingdom in two through civil war. There's King Basha who killed off the entire family of Jeroboam. That may be good, that may be bad, depending upon how you feel about Jeroboam. Of King Ahab, it is written in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. King Manasseh tried. 2 Kings 21, verse 9, he seduced them to do evil more than even the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. But God does not leave them there. God gives them a king. He gives Israel her king. This will be a king unlike any other king throughout her storied history. This would be a king who was unlike any king throughout the annals of history. And this king, we would call him the king of kings. He arrives in a unique way to perform, of course, a unique act. Jesus Christ is king. But this morning I want us to consider whether he is a king, the king, or my king. This is an important question for each of us to answer this morning, because how we answer this says something about the state of our soul, about even where we will reside on the other side of this life. How we answer this question impacts how we live our lives right now. 
It impacts how we spend our time and how we spend our money and how we spend our energy. In fact, it might be even difficult to name just one area of our life untouched by how we answer the question. A man named Matthew could say, Jesus is my king. And Matthew, as you may recall, was a tax collector in the days of Jesus. And he gave up that tax collecting to go and follow the king, to follow Jesus. He was a Jew who knew well the stories of the Old Testament, the stories of Israel's kings and her relationship with them. And this morning in the Bible book that bears his name, he labors to show us that Jesus is the promised king. He reigns, he rules, he will return to establish his kingdom right here. We'll pick up in Matthew chapter 21. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Matthew 21. We're going to pick up where we left off last time with verse 1 this morning. And as you turn there, recall the the big picture of Matthew. Matthew has presented us the king. In the first few chapters, he's told us of this man named Jesus. We learn that he is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. He provides us with a genealogy, a baptism, even the background on his life. And then for about 12 chapters, we've followed the ministry of Jesus. We've seen sermons and and miracles and parables. And we now approach his passion, the climax of his life, his death and his resurrection. This morning, he enters the holy city of Jerusalem just one last time. Dubbed the triumphal entry, our text will divide divide into two main sections today. We'll see first this preparation, the preparation for the king in the first five verses, and then in verses 6 through 11, the, the celebration of the king. Again, we seek to answer the question, what type of king is Jesus? Is he a king, is he the king, or is he my king? Well, let's begin with the preparation for the king in the first five verses. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. If you would for a moment recall last week, Jesus was journeying along to Jerusalem. You might recall that he passed through Jericho, healing two blind men as he did so. He left Jericho, the crowds followed, and he arrived at a town called Bethany. 
Now, the Gospel of John will fill us in. We'll visit it a little bit later, but there he ran into someone that you and I know as Lazarus, an old friend of his. But now he approaches Bethpage. No one quite knows where this town's located. Verse 1 tells us it's, quote, at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives would be the, the last great hill before entering Jerusalem. You go up over the mount and then down into the Kidron Valley, and then you enter the city. But what sticks out to me about this account is how Jesus chose that entrance. Of all the ways he could have entered Jerusalem, it's the way or the way he chose to enter. We see that he sent two disciples along to fetch a a donkey and a colt. You see, they were given some very specific instructions. Something almost akin to a password. The Lord has, has need of them. That, that, that would be the, the way to tip them off, to know that they could bring back this donkey and the colt. It might even have been prearranged where the Lord had set this whole thing up. It's almost as though the, the donkey owner knew who Jesus was, perhaps even a, a believer and a follower of Jesus. And if the means of obtaining the ride weren't odd enough, consider the ride itself. What is a king doing on a donkey? My Bible version called the donkey a beast of burden. This is not the ride of, a, of royalty. This is not the ride of a king. What do kings do? As they travel, they, they flaunt their power. They want the world to see that they are victorious or powerful. In this time, for example... A victorious Roman general would enter a city. There'd be an elaborate official parade that would be thrown in his honor. He would ride in a gold chariot. A priest would burn incense in his name. If there were trophies or prisoners of war, they would go on before his entourage. But the king of Israel, he came atop a donkey. And he did this because though he had the power, he had humility. And though he could, be, he could not be defeated, he sacrificed anyway. And though this king possessed divinity, he laid it aside to redeem a people. We see in our text this morning, specifically, he rode a donkey to fulfill prophecy. The Old Testament predicted that God's king would arrive on a donkey. Now, this prophecy came through a prophet named Zechariah. There's an Old Testament book that bears his name. We probably don't read this book a whole lot. It's one of those shorter books at the end of the Old Testament He's named among the, quote, minor prophets because their 12 books are are so short. But he lived alongside men we might know, men like Ezra, men like Nehemiah. He lived in a time when the nation of Israel was, was coming back to her land. For many years, she'd been off in a Babylonian captivity. She'd been punished by God. For covenant disobedience, she broke God's law and God promised discipline. But God is now renewing the nation. 
Ezra, Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the city. They're rebuilding the wall. And like other prophets of the time, he came along to exhort the people and to encourage them to continue. This book of Zechariah, perhaps of all the prophets, is strongly messianic. In other words, much is said of the Messiah to come. The Messiah who rides atop a donkey into Jerusalem today. The Lord God, through Zechariah, predicted the arrival of this king. Again, not as we've observed, not, through, not on a stallion, not on a chariot, but the king came along on a donkey. And he didn't come violently. He didn't come viciously, but he came humbly. I think that for some in our day, the choice of the vehicle driven is meant to convey something about them. And I believe that was true for Jesus. He was a powerful king, but he was also very humble and very gentle. And for those who saw him traveling along atop a donkey, he sent a message, a message about himself, who he was and what he was about. This is the type of king that Jesus is. It doesn't in any way undermine his power, but his humility balances it out. He is also humble. He is also gentle. I recall a passage we we saw in Matthew months ago. It was an invitation given by Jesus to those listening. Come to me, he says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. He puts that on display this morning as he enters atop a donkey. And let me make one more observation about these preparations that are made. This entire plan is divine. There is no chance. There is no coincidence. I mean, do you have any idea how impossible it would be to orchestrate everything that's happening here? If I can get two boys in my car with shin guards, that's a win. But there's so many moving parts here. Only God could do this. There's this donkey. Jesus supplied these two disciples, the village, the location in the village, the animal, the words to speak. He told them the reaction of the owner. Then there's the calendar aspect to this. This account, this entrance, takes place on a Sunday. This is the start of what we now call Holy Week. In a moment, we're going to see why we call this day Palm Sunday. There's also something called a feast. That would take place on Thursday of Holy Week. It was the Passover feast. That was a time to remember God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. It commemorated the Exodus event when he delivered them from slavery. And in Exodus chapter 12, the command is given to the people of God to slaughter a lamb at Passover. And ever since God instituted Passover, a sacrificial lamb would be slaughtered each year, same day, same month. Jesus is the fulfillment. 
Again, the timing of this cannot be planned by the minds of men. Only God could do this. He would be sacrificed at Passover. Only now it happens one time. One sacrifice for all time. No more lambs. No more blood. No more Passover. And we've already seen, again, the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah 9. Only a sovereign God infinite in his wisdom, could orchestrate an event like this. The preparation for the king's arrival, they were made. If you step back and you think about the Bible for a moment, about all of biblical history, the entirety of the Bible is really one of preparation. I mean, think about this for a moment. The historical books of the Old Testament, giving us the history, telling us the story, They keep preparing us for the one who will come and set all things right. The prophets, they continually predicted the arrival of this Messiah. And then even the law, the law prepares us by showing us our need for Christ. I feel like as we turn at each corner of the scriptures, another preparation is being made for the arrival of Jesus for all the fulfillment that he will bring. So how about you this morning? How are you preparing for the return of the king? Jesus is going to return. At Passover, on that Thursday, what else did he tell his disciples? He told them as they sat around to eat of the meal, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is preparing a place for you. And then what else did he say? I will come again and receive you to myself. So the king is coming. Are we prepared for that? Today's account in some ways instructs us to be prepared. It lays before us what preparation for the king is like. In our passage, we saw obedience. This is huge. Christ desires our obedience The same night of this Passover, what did he say to the disciples? If you love me, you will keep my my commandments. And his two disciples, they obeyed him. They went and retrieved the donkey and the colt. They did what Jesus told them to do. They said what Jesus told them to say. You and I prepare for his return by obeying, by obeying his word. Secondly, in this account, we see service. We see service. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter will, will write, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see, the owner of this donkey, he served Christ. And if you think about the magnitude of that entrance, he, he served many people because he put Jesus on display by lending out his donkey for this ride. Many witnesses would ride Jesus right atop the donkey. You see, it was a simple act of obedience, but nevertheless, it was an act of obedience. He served the king. He he just, he used, he gave what he had for the kingdom of God. And thirdly, in this account, I I see one more way to prepare, and that's through worship. 
people in this account, they're going to come out for Jesus. They're going to come and participate in worship. In a moment, we're going to hear them speak words of worship. In our account so far, we saw them lay their coats over top the colt. In a moment, we're going to see them even lay their coats on the ground. That's a bit unusual, perhaps. But that was an act of homage. It's a way to show honor to a king. And in a moment, again, their worship, they'll voice it with words like Hosanna in verse 9. And we can prepare for Jesus by worshiping him now. Uh, We would not want to think that our worship or true worship happens in heaven, that we need to wait till we get there to, to really worship Jesus. Now we can worship Jesus. As believers, we can boldly approach the throne. Lord willing, as believers, we have reasons to worship Jesus. I recall someone telling me one time and reflecting upon the transition from this life into the next about his, his death. He would, he would hope that there'd be as little transition or as little change needed as possible. That right now in this life, he is becoming more and more like Christ in his obeying and his serving and his worshiping. That when he does go to heaven, that would be such a smooth transition because he's already doing those things he'll do then right now. I thought that was such a good insight. Like, I don't want to wait till I get to heaven to to really start worshiping Jesus. I want to work on that now. I want to worship him now. I want to be prepared for when I see him. So we want to live in a way now that prepares us for the eternity to come. Well, secondly, in our account, we see not only preparations made for Jesus, but a celebration in his honor. In verses 6 through 10, it's it's the celebration of the king. In verse 6, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey in the cold and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who follow were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So the people come out and coronate the king, in a way. Again, we see this in the spreading of the coats and the spreading of the palms. It's it's an act of homage or honor to a king. And their shouts reveal that Jesus is king. Hosanna to the son of David, they say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Much of that is based off of a psalm. It's Psalm 118. And that psalm is part of a series of psalms all together in the book of Psalms. And they're called the Hallel Psalms. And these psalms were sung at at major festivals in Jerusalem. We know that Passover is happening this week. It's Holy Week in Jerusalem. So they're singing these psalms as they come, pilgrims from all over the land, to come and celebrate Passover. This is an annual event. The people would have known these songs well. 
It might be comparable to you and I at, at Christmas time singing Joy to the World. It's a group of songs that we know that we sing with every annual celebration. Now, the word Hosanna is significant. It's Psalm 118, verse 25, and it's brought over from a Hebrew word meaning do save or save us. It's in the form of a prayer, but it's actually a command. And that might sound a little weird. God's people commanding God in a prayer to do something. But in fact, you and I often do the same thing. Jesus teaches us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a command. But we also understand that we're not exactly making demands of God. At least I I don't think we are. It's a command put in the form of a request. And that's what the people are, are, are singing or shouting in today's passage. Save us or do save. Hosanna. When they're shouting this, they're shouting for Jesus the King to save them from something or from someone. From their sins? Well, maybe some of them meant that, no doubt. But many wanted saving from something else. And they wanted saving from this Roman occupier, this Roman army that's been occupying their city and their land for decades. They're looking for a king to come and give Rome the boot. To kick them out of the land and to restore the land to the nation of Israel. And the crowds see Jesus as this Messiah. They call him the son of David. Remember, Israel had her share of bad kings. You and I, we named a few already this morning. But David was a good one. He wasn't perfect, but he was a good king. And a covenant was made by God with David to deliver the best king. And they see this rightly in the person of Jesus. And we can read rightly of the work of Jesus. His miracles certainly confirmed. His teaching confirmed that he's that king. So the people see this. They hear of him. This miracle worker, if any man can save us from this hated Roman occupier, it's Jesus of Nazareth. So there's a celebration. It's happening in the streets. It's it's right. It is good. Jesus is a king. He should be worshipped as such. But there's more to these crowds. Who they were and even their attitudes toward Jesus. There's at least three groups we want to consider this morning. I want to go over to the Gospel of John for just a moment. It's John chapter 11. And you might recall that all four Gospels record the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all record this event, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And what John does is he gives us one of the leading reasons for this excitement. In John chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Down in verse 45, 
Jewish witnesses, they see this happen. They believe upon Jesus. In verse 46, others go and report this to the religious leaders. So the first group back in Matthew called this crowd that was welcoming Jesus. He called them crowds, excuse me. We would describe them probably as like a a hodgepodge of people. There's different types of people in this large group. We know in this group welcoming Jesus, there would have been these new believers who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Excuse me, the resurrection of Lazarus. They saw what Jesus did, and they, they followed him. They went with him into Jerusalem. It's interesting to think about, in last week's account, back in Jericho, the two blind men healed by Jesus, I wonder if they weren't along witnessing all this as well. And even beyond that, before Jericho, pilgrims had been moving toward Jerusalem for Passover week. So Jesus would have been surrounded by other people, perhaps as far back as Galilee and so on. And still in John now, looking down at chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, those who bore witness to Lazarus spread the word of the miracle in Jerusalem. People were coming out to see the man who raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse 18, for this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So we might say it this way, if the zeal of the crowds is the fire, the spark for that zeal was the raising of Lazarus. Now, in the second group of people, this would be more in the background than in the foreground of our accounts, are religious leaders. Now, I want to mention them this morning because in the weeks to come, they're going to play a significant role in what unfolds in Jerusalem. These guys are not nice guys. If you're new to the Christian faith, if you're just coming around the church when you hear religious leaders, you might have different thoughts about that. The religious leaders in the days of Jesus were not nice people. They were not godly. If you're in the Gospel of John still, go back to chapter 11, verse 48, just to give you an idea of these opponents of Jesus. What's their motivation? If we let Jesus go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These are supposed to be the shepherds of God over God's people. But they want power. And they're concerned that a man like Jesus might come along and mess things up. They're evil. Look down at verse 53. They plan together to kill him. That's the discussion that happens at a mob meeting, not a religious council. You can only imagine, then, how people whose hearts are this dark feel about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, with the coat spreading, the palm branches, shouts of Hosanna, all of the fanfare. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 1, excuse me, 21, Matthew 21. And I know we're jumping ahead 
just a day. We'll see this next time. Down in verse 15, it's going to be Monday. And the Lord makes his presence known once he's in the town. Verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things Jesus had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. They were incensed, irate. They were enraged that Jesus was getting attention, possibly getting power. And they hated this welcome of the King of God. Well, there's one more group I want to explore this morning. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. These are simply the citizens of Jerusalem. These people know festivals. They know crowds. They live in the the capital city. I mean, Jerusalem is unlike any other capital city because it's not only the center of political life, but religious life and social life. This is one busy place. I imagine it's a lot like living in the town of Leavenworth. You just get used to a lot of people who don't live there coming in and out of town. So even though they were used to this, or perhaps that's what really puts an exclamation mark behind this, something this time was different. They're used to, to, the, to the hubbub and the, the in and out of people through their community. But what do they say this time? They say, who is this? And the crowds reply, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That statement isn't wrong, but it's not completely right either. Now, without a doubt, the name of the Lord is Jesus. Going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 21 of Matthew, Joseph is instructed to name him Jesus. And we know that he's a prophet. In chapter 13, Jesus observed what? That a prophet's not even welcome in his hometown, speaking of himself. And Jesus is indeed from Nazareth. Contrary to Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes. But there's even more to this man who came out of Nazareth. And it's captured, I believe, at least in part, in the shout of verse 9. Jesus is the son of David. He is royalty. He is the divine king. He's the one who came in the name of the Lord. He is God. And later in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, the author will affirm that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. That can be said of no one other than Jesus. Nothing quite like him has ever been seen in Jerusalem. The people are puzzled. Who is this? Keeping in mind, Jerusalem saw a lot of prophets. Elijah. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Verse 10 tells us, quote, the city was stirred. That's not a very good translation. The word for stirred is used of earthquakes. In in Hebrews 12, it's the effect of the voice of God when he speaks. Later in Matthew 27, it's used of an earthquake that follows the death of Jesus. You see, the city, my friends, did not stir. It shook. And we've gone so far from a voice crying in the wilderness to a sermon preached upon a mount 
to miracles performed in countless hamlets to the poorest people of the countryside. Now the king enters the capital city. He enters Jerusalem. It's an immense celebration. In this account today, preparations were made for the arrival of the king. And when he came, there was great celebration. He shook the city. Rightfully so, because Jesus is king. And that's not a statement that's open for debate. The Bible declares it as fact. Some may object to it, but those objections don't change the truth of it. But the question nevertheless remains for you and I, what type of king is he? Is he a king? Is he one king among many kings? Is he a good man? Just a prophet? Maybe he's God, maybe he isn't. Maybe he's just as good at other religions at helping people get to God. Simply a king. Or is he the king? He is it. There is no other king beside him. Exclusive is Jesus the king. He's the son of David, the promise, Old Testament prophecy. The Christian religion is the way to go. We might say these things, he is the king, but I don't want us to stop there. I want you to ask yourself this morning, is he my king? Can you say that this morning? in a deeply personal, humble, honest, sincere, and heartfelt way that Jesus isn't just a king, and Jesus isn't just the king, but Jesus is my king. And this morning, then, you're preparing for his arrival. You're serving and obeying and worshiping, and this morning you're following him down that road lined with the palms and the coats, as we saw. Not to the throne, not yet. Because when we say that, we'll follow in the same way that Jesus went. We'll encounter trial, and we'll encounter suffering. And as Jesus died for sin, so too do you die to sin. And as Jesus rose from the dead, so too will you rise to newness of life. These are the things that happens when Jesus is my king. And perhaps most of all this morning, can you say along with the Apostle Paul that that beloved verse, that statement, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we celebrate your kingship. We don't possess any doubt in our minds that you are the king, yet many lords vie for the throne of our hearts. And I pray for us this morning that it would be occupied by by you alone, that you would be our king, that you would be my king, and that each of us could say that here together in unity this morning. 
Lord, we need your help. Because as we journey on in this life, we want to be like you. But we can't do this in our own power. We pray that as we depart here this morning, we would do so in the power of you, our King. We pray these things in Jesus' name.